Bethel World Outreach Church. Reaching a city to touch the world. Today, the word is going to be delivered by an extremely gifted orator. He is um, one of the associate professors at Wesleyan um, um, College, and um, he's been a friend of this ministry for a few years now. He's helped our global family when it comes to theology and preaching and teaching and mentorship. He's a friend of mine and a mentor and, and a helper in the area of artic articulating the word. You will, he's supremely excellent at what he does, but more importantly, there's a grace and an anointing on what he's going to say today that can be a life change for you. So as you welcome him, um, he has, he has uh, three children, um, a son named Dawson, a daughter named Zoe, and Ella, a wife named Holly. I want you to be praying with him as he delivers the word. Dr. Dave Ward, would you come and bless us? Come on, let's give him a Bethel welcome as he comes. I said a Bethel welcome. It, but thank you for it. It's going to feel a little bit in contrast to this moment where we're going next. And there's a reason for that. Some of you sitting in here right now feel in contrast to what just happened. You watched something break loose and great joy hit the room. You watched a sense of freedom and a spirit of exalting God and honoring God and, a, a, and almost a, I don't know how to express what I feel. Did you see it in some people? Uh, but whether it's an online moment where you weren't here for that or whether you in here were almost like you were watching something happening online, what's going on? You might be coming from a contrasting situation. And I want you to know that we know where you are, though it may not seem like we do. Uh, I want to start with a phrase that will sound common to you. Have you said this lately? It is what it is. Yeah. It is what it is. Have you heard someone say that lately? An alcoholic woke up on the 5th of January this year the same way he woke up the last seven days with a splitting headache, a foggy mind, and a curse at the clock. He stumbled into the bathroom, knocked over the jar of ibuprofen, fisted four red pills, shoved them into his face, guzzled them down with last night's leftover water glass, hurried through the shower. Hustled downstairs, quick cup of coffee, out the door, and very, very quietly shut the car door to not hurt his head. And on his commute to work, to the job he hates, to work with the people he hates working with, he began to feel his shoulders tighten, his jaw clench, and he steeled himself against it with that phrase, well... It is what it is. 
On New Year's Day this year, a single woman, 25 years old, who longs to be married, longs to have kids, but is not married, has no kids, woke up after the fourth one-night stand in just as many months the first day of the year. Ever since that day, she's been checking her texts to see that all the way up through this Friday, no answer, no response, no text. When she went to meet for coffee with a lady who's been trying to bring her into a better way of life, this is how she put it. Well, that's just the way guys are. Guess he got everything he wanted. Just is what it is. Have you heard that lately? Have you said that lately? It's our way of describing the brokenness that we experience in this world. It's our way of describing what happens when our own brokenness brings about a brokenness around us. And in all of that brokenness, we can't see it ever getting to a place where we felt like things were all back together. It just is sort of a resigning to the situation, a giving in to what seems to always have to be. When I was talking with Pastor James about this passage and this sermon, I think it was Tuesday, I asked him, have you heard that phrase? Lately, it is what it is. And he said, oh, my word, all the time, Dave. By the way, thank you for letting me be here today. Thank you, Pastor James, and thank you for all you do for this church. I want to give a thanks to the pastoral ministry team. I see you, and I see all that you're doing around here. It's a lot of work to put on something like this, and I'm honored to be a tiny little part of your worship service today. But he hears it all over the place, Pastor James does. And one of the ways we were talking about it is the way systems of sin create brokenness around us and break us when we try to move in against them. And I know some of you have experienced that. And you might have even heard your mama say to you, don't try to punch a meat grinder. Doesn't hurt the meat grinder, only hurts you when you experience prejudice because of the color of your skin or the culture you come from or the accent that you have because of the language that's closest to your heart. And you might have been tempted to just say, well, it is what it is. Am I right? And there's truth in that. In a way, it is. It just is. There is an isness to sin. That's what the Bible calls this brokenness we're experiencing. That's not a word we're used to using. That's not a word we hear in our culture. It's a word that even sounds offensive to people. But we all know the reality it describes. That's why I love the passage we're turning to today in Titus. If you have your Bibles and can turn there, you have a paper Bible with you, it's at the end of all the T's of the New Testament. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus. Which, by the way, seems like a very appropriate Bible passage to be reading from today because it sounds a lot like Titans. Huh? Huh? Wasn't that stinking fun? Yes. Yeah, two games in a row, the world is thanking the Titans for slaying Goliath. Although Henry's kind of a Goliath, isn't he? What a beast. Beast. Put on a beast mode last night. I texted Pastor James. Pastor James said, I think I might wear a braid tomorrow. I thought, Pastor James ain't wearing a braid tomorrow. I don't think he knows that he can't wear a braid tomorrow. That's beyond your possibility anymore, brother. 
<laughs> Titus, sorry, Titus chapter 3, complete derailment. Titus chapter 3, Paul is talking about the isness of sin, but what I love about what Paul does here, he's writing to Titus, who's living in Crete, uh, what was famous for being a wild living island. Paul doesn't condemn them. He points to himself. When he wants to talk about what is and the brokenness of sin and the brokenness of the world, he points right at himself. Listen to how he says it. In verse 3 of chapter 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is the Apostle Paul talking. We ourselves, he says. But, in verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's the word of God. Praise be to him, right? Paul there is describing his own sin condition, his own brokenness in a way that we can all resonate with it. And i got to be careful here because every single word of this passage is worthy of a sermon, a whole sermon for every single Word. If you're trying to think about what passage you might want to memorize this year, memorize this one. This would be a good one. But I'm going to give you five things that Paul says about the condition of sin and brokenness and the isness of it. Uh, and we'll move into the grace of God as we go. First of all, Paul says, For we ourselves once were foolish, Titus 3 3. Let me put it this way we were unaware. The word foolish in the Greek there means to be um, unaware of the circumstances that you're sitting in, unaware of the context that you're acting in, and unaware of the consequences that your actions are going to have. And because you act in a way that's unaware of what's around you, unaware of the context you're in, unaware of the consequences that are going to occur, you're foolish in what you're doing. Uh, it's not a word we use very much, foolish. It's kind of an old word, isn't it? Here's a word that you might resonate with more in our current culture today. One you might have actually used lately. Clueless. Don't look down the row. Don't look at somebody. <laughs> Be careful now. Clueless. Clueless means they're not even keyed into what's going on. They don't even have a clue how silly they look right now. They don't even have a clue how far they are off from the situation. Have you sat in a meeting lately and thought, oh my word, is she clueless? Is he just clueless? That's kind of what the word means. Now, this is the apostle Paul. Brilliant architect of the Gentile church. Famous theologian of the New Testament, trained by the expert theologian Gamaliel. He was one of the best educated people of his day, speaking multiple languages, writing multiple languages, trained in the art of rhetoric, a Roman citizen, which was kind of the cream of the crop, living in Jerusalem, in the inner circle of the inner circle of the religious leaders. That's Paul. We were foolish then. Paul says, clueless, raised in religious services, raised in worship moments, raised in the scripture, could quote it backwards and forwards to you. 
Just because you've heard the Bible, just because you've grown up in the church, just because you come here every week doesn't mean you are fully aware. You could be clueless coming here, clueless to the amazing grace God has, clueless to how undeserving you and I both are. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying what is. Or you might be fully aware of how unaware of the things of God you are. Either way you come in here today, I think you can resonate with Paul. The, grace, the good news of the grace of God is that he is always trying to wake us up <laughs> from our unawareness. I have two teenage daughters that... When you go through teenage years, nobody ever grows up and says, I wish I was a teenager again. So, sorry to all of you who are suffering through that. Nobody ever says, I wish that was still going on. It's hard to wake up. It's hard to get up. And on the weekend, sometimes let them sleep in late. But if things need to get moving off, and I'll go in, I'll just open the door and let the sounds of the house try to wake them up, right? That's the first step. That doesn't work. I'll go in and open the blinds a little bit more, open the curtains a little bit more. The light falls on their eyes. Hopefully that gets the body chemistry going. I do it quietly, do it slowly, because I don't want to face the fire-breathing dragons. If that doesn't work, I go and I gently lay my hand on a shoulder and just hold it there for a moment. If the eyes flicker, I just say, honey, it's time to get up. But if that doesn't work, I give it just a gentle shake. Just like, especially if time has run out and they don't have any more time and they've got to get up, they have some place they need to be, some place they want to go, and they don't realize they're going to miss out on something if they don't get going right now. Maybe you're here because God has been slowly waking you up. And you're not exactly sure how it's happened. You couldn't explain to anyone how you ended up in this seat today. But somewhere along the way, little tiny things have been happening. And there's been this light opening up metaphorically in your life. You're starting to see a little bit of how unaware you've been. That's wonderful. Glad you're here. But I think in a room like this, some of you are probably here because there's been some bad things going on. And maybe you're even angry right now because God's big and when he gives you a shake, it's a little shake to him, but it feels big to you. But there's something urgent going on. Ephesians 5 says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. There is urgency. There is a season of time that is closing for you to receive the amazing grace of God. And when that season of time is gone, it is gone. If he's shaking you, it's because there's urgency. And he loves you, and it's time to wake up. And Paul says, we were unaware. Number two, we were once foolish, disobedient. The second condition is that we were unconvinced. This word uh, to be disobedient comes from sort of a, a stair-stepping progression of realities. Could be translated unbelieving could be translated, uh, could be uh, trans unbelieving, could be translated unconvinced, and could be translated just like it is here, disobedient. The idea is that if you don't believe and are therefore unconvinced, you will disobey. 
every time. Not because you just want to shake your fist at the sky. You just aren't convinced. You don't believe necessarily there is a God, or you aren't convinced that that is the best way, and so you're going to do it your way, right? You are an American after all. That's what we do. We sing it every New Year's Eve. I did it my way. The ball's dropping. We're not convinced that God's way is the best way. For those of us even who are convinced that God exists, and some of you I understand, you're wrestling intellectually with that. But, but even those of us who have given our lives over to God sometimes aren't convinced. That whole tithing thing, that 10% thing, you start adding that up and you want to say to Pastor Bryson, I love your energy, man. <laughs> I just love it. I mean, you're passionate. You're good at what you do. Got to give it to you, Pastor Bryson. But come on, be 10%. Have you added up what's 10% for me? Let me show you my little smartphone. I got a calculator. I mean, I mean that right there, that's Cancun. <laughs> We're talking like Cancun. And season tickets to the Titans, some of you. I'm not convinced that being a generous person, sacrificing my greed on the altar, giving my, re my resources and my funds to help other people, I'm not convinced being a generous person, an open-hearted person, a grace-giving person, a, a mission-minded person, a community-minded person is the best thing. That's just one example. Even in the church, some people aren't convinced that uh, fidelity is the most important thing and that you shouldn't be sleeping with somebody before you're married to them. And I'm not judging you here if you're there. I'm really not judging you because we're all under the same thing. I, too, was once foolish and disobedient, I can say with Paul. But we're not convinced, even though the studies show that divorce rates shoot through the roof if you're sexually intimate all the way up to marriage, as opposed to those who are not sexually intimate before they get married. It's not that God can't redeem your situation. He can. It's not that he can't repair it. He will. It's not that he can't make it something beautiful. He wants to. But his way is the best way. There's a reason. He's not a vindictive God. He's not a restrictive God. He's a good God. This passage says when the, when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared... He's trying to wake us up. He's saying, come on, come on, there's a better way. But when we are unaware and we are unconvinced, we are completely unclear. Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Led astray means to wander without a guide so that you stumble into error. You don't have to intentionally mess up your life to mess up your life. But once you have, it just is what it is. You don't have to mean to do something wrong to have done something wrong. But once you have, it just is what it is. But it doesn't have to stay that way. We're unclear because we don't have a compass and a map that guides us through life that shows us the way we're supposed to go. We are led astray because we're wandering without a guide and are stumbling into dangerous territory. When I was 12 years old, I was sent out by my parents to Wyoming uh, for survival training. <laughs> 
I don't know what they thought was coming, you know. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have some bunker somewhere filled with jars and a second generator and a, you know, a, a, a machine gun turret in the backyard. We weren't those people. Uh, we weren't expecting the coming apocalypse, but they wanted us to know how to do all kinds of things that would help us survive. And my uncle was sort of an outdoorsman. So we went out there learning to shoot bows and arrows and guns and hunt and fish and all that kind of stuff. And the end of that experience that summer for me and my brother, we were sent out into the wilderness mountains of Wyoming. My uncle took us to the most remote place he could, backing his 4x4 Bronco up the boulder-strewn, it wasn't even a road anymore, washout, to get us to the most remote place. And then we had a topo map and a compass. We had a 38 snub nose, a 44 magnum, and a 22-inch rifle with a scope for small game. He said the 44-inch magnum is for the bear while it's charging, then the 38 snub nose is for in its face. Unload the whole thing, maybe you'll survive. It's bear country, try to be, be careful out there, have a good time, boys. And we were gone for seven days. We basically carried a, a frying pan and two fishing poles and, 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 and some butter so that we, and some seasoned salt so we could make it taste better. That was about it. And then we had two cans of mandarin oranges and a few Nutri-Grain bars. That was all, seven days. We went 25 miles with a topo map and a compass to find the lake that we were going to fish, and we stayed there seven days. Now, every few miles, we had to recheck that map and reorient it with the compass because we knew invariably that crossing the streams and fording the places, there was no path, there was no trail, there were no blazes, this was wild country, that we'd be a little bit off course. We'd have to find a new marker of a place that we were supposed to go, line it into our sights, and look at the map, estimate how far we should go that direction, and then check again. We got to the lake we were supposed to go to, and we didn't die. I'm, I'm here. So at least one out of three, you know. No, just kidding. All of us made it just fine. You wouldn't do that with your kids now, would you? The kid says, hey, I want to go three straights over to play with a friend of mine. Well, are you sure, honey? Can you text me when you get there? I just want to make sure you're okay. Can you text me about every hour? I just want to make sure you're all right. <laughs> Sorry. It's another sermon. <laughs> now, imagine how lost we would have been without a compass and without a map. Experts tell us that we're not the most lost when we know we're lost. We're the most lost when we think we aren't lost because our mental map is what is guiding us and our mental map is wrong. And that's where many people in our culture are today. And that may be where you have been. Without a true north, without a guide, you will spend your life in a direction that will be the wrong direction. And when you get there, you'll wish you'd taken a different way. You might end up on the exact wrong side of the mountain facing a cliff and not know how to get out of here. You might be there today, I don't know. But when we are unaware, we are unconvinced, and when we are unconvinced, our lives become unclear. And when they are unclear and we live them that way for quite some time, we become very unsatisfied. Titus 3.3 says this, Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions, slaves to them, bound by them, chained up by them. There's a reason people are praising God today. They once were Right here. They once were in this verse. And they're praising God and raising their hands and celebrating even right now because that is a once were moment for them. Amazing grace has stepped in. They're not addicts and alcoholics and sexaholics. They're not rageaholics, workaholics. And Paul says, we too were once enslaved by various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy. Unsatisfied is my summary of all of those things. Unsatisfied, look at that person's life. I'm envious, wish I could have what they have. 
malice because of it. Wish something bad would happen to them. I'll feel better if something bad would just happen to them. That'd make me feel better. Don't tell me you've never felt that way. Why do they always have everything right? Oh, look, that was something bad. Good, good. I feel better. Unsatisfied. We are the wealthiest nation to ever exist on the earth. You realize that? By far, and I'm not saying everybody has equal access to that wealth. I'm not saying that. But the standard of living by which we judge how much we have is so ridiculously high. Our grandparents, if they saw the cars we drive, would blow their mind, right? Great grandparents, whatever. My grandparents, he's already gone. My grandfather, he's already passed away. If he drove in the car I'm driving right now, well, you can see what's behind you on that thing. Wow. It beeps at you if you don't know how to drive. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You mean you don't have to go around to lock each door? Wow. What's that blowing on my face? What's AC? Things they never had are now standard for us, but we just start thinking, well, if I could just have heated seats, then I'd be happy. We pull into our two-car garage and think, this is too tight. Should have built a three-car garage so I could fit all my stuff. If we have a three-car garage, we're thinking I should have had a bump out because then I could have fit more stuff. We're increasingly dissatisfied. We're wealthier and wealthier and wealthier and more and more unsatisfied. Depression is racing. Every year, more and more people are clinically depressed. It's measurable. Every year, more and more people are physically cutting themselves out of self-loathing and self-hatred because they're angry. Every year, it's measurable. Divorces are, are happening across the country. Families are falling apart because they're dissatisfied with their imperfect partner because, of course, they're perfect. We're anxious, we're depressed, we're we're over-worried, we're overworked, and we're the wealthiest nation to ever exist because we're completely unaware of the situation we're in. We're unconvinced that what God is telling us would ever fix it. So we're disobedient and we're led astray and we're unsatisfied. Our lives are pointing in the wrong direction. If we get all the money we want in all the world, it wouldn't make us any happier. Money just magnifies your current state. You know that, right? If you're happy now, you'll be happier then, hopefully, if you don't misuse it. If you're unhappy now, you'll be depressed then. Unsatisfied. Number five. We were unforgiven and unforgiving. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You realize how many people's lives sound just like that alcoholic I mentioned at the beginning of our time? They go to a job they hate to work with people they hate. Why is that? Have you ever wondered why it is that the longer you live in a neighborhood, the less you like the people you live there with? (laughs) Oh, this is my neighborhood? (laughs) Why'd they put that fence there? I mean, everyone knows we don't put a fence. Like, what's that kind of? Why'd they leave that out there and make this place look like a? <laughs> every single time they drive here, they do that. They drive here there every time. Every time. <laughs> this is what happens, right? When somebody else sins, it's shocking. When we sin, it's understandable. <laughs> And when we get in an argument, their wrong is a 10 out of a 10. Our wrong is a 1 out of a 10. 
Now, quick compare your 10 out of a 10 to my 1 out of a 10. And they stand over there and say, what do you mean 1 out of 10? That's an 11 out of a 10. Mine's a 2 out of a 10. And then we go back and forth and back out of, right? We compare ourselves that way. And because of that, we become embittered towards each other. And the more we hate one another, the more they sense that. And the more they sense our hatred, the more they hate us back. And the more they hate us back, the more we think, what a hateful, spiteful person. I haven't done anything wrong. And the cycle keeps going. You tell me I'm not naming life. This is what it is. You tell me I'm wrong. This is the nature of sin. This is the brokenness that I have to name. Go into your kitchen and look at how clean the front of the cabinets are. That's nice. Now run your hand under the faceplate just in front of the sink, just on the underside of it. Feel what's there. Some of you already know what's there, right? And that's the way it is sometimes even with us who've been living in the abundant grace of God for a long time. We're keeping things clean on the face, but there's unforgiveness underneath. There's this sticky, nasty stuff that's hidden even from our eyes, even from people who know, but it's underneath and it's dirty, and God wants to change that, and he will if we let him. Keep reading this passage. I want to talk about God's grace. But when the goodness of loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let me just give you a a true phrase. When amazing grace comes in, life no longer is what it is because we no longer are who we are. I'm going to say it again. (laughs) It's important. When amazing grace comes in, life no longer is what it is because we no longer are who we are. Paul was Saul. He's now Paul. Don't call him Saul. That's not who I am anymore. That's not my name, he would say. Don't call me David. My name is Dave. David was a man I no longer want to be because I no longer am that man. I don't act that way. I don't think that way. I don't respond that way. I don't live that way. I don't feel that way. I don't believe that way. That's not who I am. Because of the amazing grace of God, my wife said to me seven years into our marriage, you are not the man I married. And I love every minute of it. I'm so glad Amazing grace found me. That's how Paul felt too. For these reasons, let me talk to you about what grace does. First of all, it washes you. We can be washed, this passage tells us, so that we are completely clean and brand new. If you came into church today feeling dirty, you don't have to leave that way. He can wash you, cleanse you, every stain completely gone, not with a little ring left around it that others can still see. No, like a whole new garment, a white baptismal garment placed over you, spiritually speaking. You do not have to leave with the stain of that sin. You will remember it, but without guilt, without shame. Washed. Second, we can be renewed, which is a complete change for the better. 
You can have a new identity, a new way of being, a new way of existing, a new way of thinking, a new way of acting, a new way of working, a new way of relating, a new way of neighboring, a new way of loving. You can have that today. You don't have to stay stuck saying it is what it is. You can be justified, which means just as if it never happened. Guilt free living. See that in the verse there? Verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we didn't earn it. It's not by being a good person. It's not by going to church. Believe me, it's not even by tithing. No matter what we've said, that won't save you. Not by being baptized. No, by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, as if you never sinned. You say, Dave, you don't know what I did. I have sat with murderers. I have sat with rapists. I have sat with embezzlers. I have sat with the most criminal people you will ever meet, and the joy that's in their life. One of my favorite worship services ever was in a maximum security penitentiary, people who were serving multiple life sentences back-to-back, leading worship together, hands in the air, tears flowing down their face, three of them studying for the ministry, knowing they're never going to get out so they could pastor anybody who comes into that place with a hopeless life and give them hope. You tell me I don't know what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. Christ knows what you've done and he died for it. Yes? This is amazing grace. We can be washed, renewed, justified, and adopted. Adopted. The next verse says, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You don't get to the inheritance unless you're a child. You don't get to inherit unless you're a son or a daughter. And none of us are born children of God. I don't care what the the world tells you. We're born creatures of God. But when we come to grace and receive amazing grace and say, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my Savior, I will not live my own life anymore. I need your compass. Put your spirit within me. I need your map. I'm living according to your scriptures. I devote the rest of my life to you. He then cleanses us, washes us, rebirths us, renews us, and adopts us into his family and says, that's my daughter. That's my son. That's my daughter. That's my son. I choose her. I'm not obligated. I choose him. It's not a duty. It's not an irritation. It's not a frustration. That's the joy of my life. God wants to adopt you. And I share with you something said by Augustine of Hippo. He says this, grace is not given because we have done good works, but in order that we may do them. Listen to what Titus says, the last verse here in this passage, Titus 3. So that being justified by his grace, you might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on things, these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Not because you should, but because you can. When amazing grace comes in, life no longer is what it is. We're not who we once were, and we're not focusing on amazing grace just so we can feel it. I know you felt it today. I've heard you feel it. We're not focusing on amazing grace so that we can feel it, but so that we can give it. You want this to be the most ridiculously gracious church that's ever been seen on the planet. You want people in this community to say, you've blown your life? Go to that church. You want people to say, you feel like you don't deserve anything else? Go to that church. 
You want people to say, you feel like there's no hope? Go there. And you want to be known as the most merciful people in your workplace, the most forgiving people in the home, the most kind and gracious people anyone ever meets. Is it true, though, of you today? Would you stand with me as we move towards close? I just want to give you a quick analogy. On the football fields people have been playing with, there's, some, there's two different kinds of fields. There's natural grass and there's field turf. It used to be called AstroTurf. Field turf is a new company being sued, by the way, but, you know, that's another story. The promise of field turf, of course, is that you don't have to maintain it as much, that you won't have all the mud patches, you won't have the slipped feet, etc. maybe even less injuries. But you know what the truth is? The four most injured teams in the NFL all play on fake turf. Eight out of the ten least injured teams play on natural grass. All four of the least injured teams play on natural grass. Every professional athlete will tell you one of the most painful things of professional athletics is turf burn. When you slide on that turf, it rips your skin right off. In other words... That grass looks great from a distance, looks even greener than the natural grass, doesn't look as messy as the natural grass, but when you come into close contact with it, when you have friction with it, it's abrasive because it's not the real deal. You can grow up in church all your life and not be the real deal. When you become the real deal, you may look a little messier. You may not have it all pretty together. But when you're the real deal, when people come into friction with you, there's a softness to you. There's a yieldedness to you. And you get messed up by it, but you give mercy. You give grace. If you don't have that and you're recognizing right now, I'm an abrasive person or there are patches of my life that are still abrasive, that means God's amazing grace hasn't fully flooded your soul. When you realize how much you've been forgiven, you want to forgive. Jesus says, he who loves much, who's forgiven much, loves much. (laughs) When you recognize that huge gap in between you and God, it's a tiny gap between you and anyone else. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me today? I believe God's been talking to some of you here. I believe he's been speaking. I believe he's moving in you even now. And if you're not familiar with the things of God, you might be thinking, what in the world is going on? Because right now, something's stirring in you. I can't make that happen. Only God does. He's moving right now. He might have even said things to you, and you thought I said them that I never spoke. That's possible. It happens all the time. Some of you here have been Christians a long time, but he's been speaking to you too. We think we're talking about amazing grace, grace, and that's a God thing. And then we realize, oh, wait, that's a me thing. If I don't become a person of amazing grace, I'm missing so much of what God has for my life. And you want that. Everybody's head bowed and eyes closed at a moment of prayer. First, I want to talk to the non-believers here, people who might have come in unaware or unconvinced. If God's stirring in your heart right now and you want to come back to the Lord, for now, all I want you to do is just look up at me. Everybody else, head bowed, eyes closed. Just look up at me. I just want to see your eyes. Believe me, I can see farther than you think. If you're looking at me, I'm thinking you're looking for that reason. I see you. Just look like, lock eyes with me. Yeah, some of you see me, you close those eyes real quick, you realize I'm seeing you, yeah. Someone else? I see you. 
see you, little man. Someone else? Way up in the back, at the top. All right, those of you who locked eyes with me, here's why I want you to look at me. I'm just going to ask you to do something today that might feel uncomfortable to you. In a few moments, we're going to have a time for prayer. A ministry team's going to come forward. They're going to come forward even now, perhaps. They just want to pray with you. We're not going to put you up on stage. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to do anything to you. But if you feel like God is moving in your heart and you want to have a life that's turned over to him, I just invite you in a few moments to come. If you feel uncomfortable doing that, grab a neighbor and have them come with you. Nobody will know who's praying today. Might end up being both of you. <laughs> All right, now for the believers in the room, you've given your life to Christ. You're here faithfully on a Sunday morning. Blessings to you. That's a good job. Way to go. Heads bowed, nice closed. But if you would say, you know what, I've been realizing there's at least a few patches in my life that are more like astroturf than grass. And I want God's amazing grace. I want you to actually slip your hand up to the Lord as a prayer to him. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I need your help. Lord, please come into my life and bring me grace. Bring me grace even now. Help me to be a more gracious person to others. Pray those prayers. In a moment, we're going to open it up. And if you're lifting your hands right now, I invite you to come and pray with someone, confessing those parts of your life that aren't quite grass yet. If something powerful happens when we say something out loud and somebody else prays for us. The music team is going to lead us in a song. And while they sing, I want to invite you, if you're wanting to come to Christ, or you've been with Christ for a long time, you want someone to pray with you about that area of your life to come, even now, as we start to sing. If you've watched this message and you want to make Jesus Lord of your life, I've got good news. You can do it right now. I want you to pray with me. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my life for the rest of my life. I acknowledge I am a sinner. I need you, my Savior. I believe you died for me. I believe you were raised from the dead on the third day. And I confess that you are now Lord of my life. If you've just prayed that prayer, I have good news for you. You have eternal life. The next step for you is to get in a Bible-believing church. We volunteer to be that church. But if not us, we pray God's blessings on you as you search for God's best for you. Thank you. Bethel World Outreach Church. Reaching a city to touch the world.